Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. I want to start off with a quote I read this week. He says, hedge funds are bad. I'm pretty sure all hedge funds are not bad. This comes from John Bogle Jr., an article in 2013 from the Wall Street Journal. In Bogle family, it's either passive or aggressive. And I found this article because there was a really great cover story in Barron's this weekend about Jack Bogle. Did you get a chance to read that? I think it was amazing. He is... You know, I think Vanguard might be one of the most impressive companies in the world, like even more impressive than Amazon and Apple, just for the sheer fact that they didn't have an egomaniac running the firm like a lot of these other tech firms did. And he wasn't setting out to be a billionaire. And so I think Vanguard actually is probably one of the most underappreciated companies there is, if that's possible. Well, maybe he was an egomaniac, but the things that he was maniacal about was the, was the customer. That's true. But I, yeah, I just think there, there's no, it's just amazing to me that when he set out the company, they had it. So the fund owners owned the company and not a public or private investment where it made him really wealthy. So Vanguard is a result of sort of the Wellington brand name being destroyed largely by by Bogle in the late 60s, early 70s. And I actually write about that in my book, Big Mistakes, Shameless Plug, Sorry Not Sorry, coming out in a few weeks. Did you learn anything new about Bogle for your research for the book? Yes, tons. But one thing that he said that I loved, and again, this is from the article in 2013, Indeed, the elder Mr. Bogle's stake in his son's mutual fund is one of his few non-index investments. And Bogle said, we do some things for family reasons. He says, if it's not consistent, well, life isn't always consistent. I thought that was a really great line. Yeah, that's good. Plus, it's his son and he's got enough money anyway. So his son's mutual fund, it's a small cap growth fund and it charges, at least last time I checked, it charges like one and a quarter percent. So... Are you saying it's a buy? I'm not saying that it's a buy or sell. I'm just saying that he invests in it. Yeah, no, it's a good... So Bogle had some great... He He's like very feisty when it comes to indexing. And he had some great stats in here. He, I mean, because people harp on indexing all the time, on the fact that it's ruining the markets and it's making it harder to beat. Some stats in here that I really liked. He said that index funds account for 43% of equity mutual fund assets, but their automatic rebalancing makes up just 5% of trading in all stocks. And what that means is that no index funds are not pushing around the market. It's still active funds that control price setting. Index funds barely trade at all, which is freeloaders. Right? Yeah, which is actually one of the best things they do is just not trade very much. And the other ones that really shocked me, I've never seen before. So he talked. People are really worried, and we talked about this last week about the fact that some of these larger tech companies make up such a increasing weight of the stock market. And so he said Apple accounts for almost three point six percent of the S and P five hundred. But it actually accounts for a larger proportion of average stock funds. So it's like 3.63%. Same thing with Google. It's 3% of the S&P and 3.5% of the average fund. And Amazon is 2.9% of the index and 3.4% of the average fund. So actually, the average <laughs> actually the average active mutual fund has a higher weighting in these companies than the index. Yeah, I thought that was sort of a mic drop. That was really good. I had never seen that before. And one of the reasons I think this is is because for better or worse, these funds benchmark to this. So not having a position in Apple or Google or Amazon is basically 
admitting that you're almost short the company. So these funds have to hug the index in a lot of ways. Another thing that was amazing that I learned in the article that I did not know. So Jack Bogle is writing his very last book. I think this is his 13th. And the last one that I read, I think it was his most recent one, Clash of the Investment, something or the other. It was really, really good. But I learned that he writes his books by hand, which is insane. Could you imagine? That is nuts. So the funny thing is a lot of successful authors actually do this. So Lee Child, the guy who writes the Jack Reacher series, does this. And I think Robert Parker does it too, who's another well-known author. I can't imagine doing it. It feels awkward for me to ever write now because all I do is type stuff. So I take notes in the books as I read them, and sometimes just doing that, my hand hurts. Right. I I mean, are our kids going to even need handwriting when they're older? Will our kids even know what a pen is? (laughs) Yeah, that that is crazy. But this, this, this was great. And he actually is, I think, an underrated author. His books are really good. They're really fact-based. I, I, yeah, I think Bogle is the man. Speaking of index funds, Jeffrey Patak wrote a really good in-depth piece at Morningstar this week, sort of taking a, a deeper dive into index flows and what we're seeing from active and from passive. And two things that stood out from this article. One is that the cheapest and highest performing active funds actually grew. They grew 8% recently. So it's not all outflows. And then the other thing that he, that he saw was that much of the outflows in US active funds are actually coming from one area, large cap growth. You know what's interesting about this is the fact that growth has outperformed value for some time now. So if we look at the five-year numbers for Vanguard value versus Vanguard growth, which is just pretty simple index funds, growth has outperformed value by almost 3% over a five-year period and over 2% over a 10-year period. That's actually less than I would have thought. Yeah, it is. And th- these are pretty simple value and growth funds. So I think this is these are probably not very targeted. But the, the thing is, is that this is actually an anti-performance chase by fund investors, which is kind of interesting. So his point, I think, is that maybe it's the costs that matter more and people are going away from those growth funds into to cheaper funds. Is that what's happening? Or the sheeple are leaving active growth and and chasing into like the queues, for instance. Ah, that, could, that makes sense. So it's more maybe the funds are leaving growth and going into momentum plays. Yeah. But either way, I think the point is this is worth reading because there's a lot more going on if you if you look under the hood than just like a few sound bites that you read from from uh, traditional financial media. So Michael, how how long until you're 35? Two more years? Uh, yeah. Okay. So you obviously read the Market Watch story and this thing went viral on Twitter. <laughs> for, for, I think for good, re- maybe for good reason, maybe not. But I, I think the so there was a story in Market Watch, and the headline was: "By age thirty-five, you should have two times your salary saved for retirement." And this thing went crazy. I wrote about this. The crazy thing to me is that it, people were very skeptical and angry and in dis- in a state of shock and disbelief because obviously very few thirty-year-olds have their have their situation in order at that age. But the funny thing is, is that it took this to really like talk about retirement at a young age. Like this is what it took for people to talk about it. Yeah, good point. The other thing that I thought was funny was that like some of the responses to MarketWatch were amazing by that tweet, but it wasn't even MarketWatch's study. It was Fidelity. <laughs> and MarketWatch got all the blowback. Right. They just She was just reporting what Fidelity said. And I wrote that too. So Fidelity also has, of course, a picture of a person walking on a beach, which is kind of par for the course when you talk about retirement. I think you have to either have someone walking on a beach or someone on a sailboat. It's pretty much the same between this and Viagra commercials. But Fidelity showed that by age 40, you should have three times your salary saved. By age 50, you should have six times. And by age 67, you should have 10 times your salary saved, which obviously a lot of people do not have. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty daunting task. 
And so I looked at what if you were the perfect retirement saver and you started at age 22 right out of school at your first job, how much would you have had to save using some simple assumptions about inflation and salary to have two times your income saved by 35? And if you started at 22, it would take about 11% for a savings rate, assuming you did it straight through. If you waited till you're 28, you'd have to have over 20% of your salary saved every year. So obviously, the later you start, the harder it's going to be. And my point was, you know, no one's life is a retirement calculator. It's never quite that simple and easy. But people have to understand if you don't start early, you're just going to have to play catch up later on, which I think is why a lot of people are so sad about this study, because <laughs> they realize the reality of the, the equation. Yeah, it's pretty sobering. I, I mean, I, I did like your thing, because what, what you just said, starting at 22, using simple inflation assumptions, like, <laughs> right? <laughs> come on, no, nobody does that. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and how many young people do you know that are really thinking that far ahead at that age? It, it's It's pretty rare. And so I think that's what people just got really upset about. And so Every other tweet for the last week has been, by age 35, you should do something. If you're thinking about saving for retirement at 22, you must be like the least fun person on the planet. And my other point is the fact that it's easy to like look at these rules of thumb and realize that you're screwed. But the other side of the equation is these rules of thumb don't take into account your unique circumstances or how much you spend. And I think one of the big things, especially at an early age, the, the point of developing good saving habits, obviously, is to grow your assets and allow compounding to help. But it's pretty obvious the fact that the higher your savings rate is, the fewer dollars you have to replace in retirement. I mean, they also don't take into account the fact that you could just buy Bitcoin cash and solve this problem whenever you'd like. What about Steven Seagal Bitcoin 2.0? What about what? Oh, that, Steven Seagal's Bitcoin. Oh, <laughs> or Jose or Conseco <laughs> coin. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So $10,000 invested in Amazon would have solved all these problems. But it's a touchy subject for young people, especially because I think a lot of young people just assume that we've been screwed over by older generations because student loans are higher than they've been. And they came into the workforce following a huge recession. No, it's also kind of interesting, just generally speaking, not about like this in particular, but that something can be beaten to death in just 48 hours. Like this is done. (laughs) Yes. The internet is undefeated again at me. Yes, exactly. So there was Bloomberg had another one kind of in the same vein. And they looked at a Charles Schwab study, and they wanted to know, at, for different generations, millennials, Gen X, boomers, what, how much money do you need to have to be considered, quote-unquote, wealthy? And, and I don't really Wait, know this, what Is this a survey? Here. This looks yeah, like a survey. Are, yeah, it was a survey. We're anti-survey podcasts. Just want to get that out of the way. But we still, look, <laughs> we still talk about them. <laughs> and so they found that the, they looked at the amount needed to be financially comfortable and the amount needed to be wealthy by different age groups. And we'll, we'll put this this chart in the show notes. They found boomers needed $2.7 million to feel wealthy. Millennials only needed $2 million, And Gen X needed two point six. This is so stupid. <laughs> I mean, what millennial said they need $1.3 million to be financially comfortable. I didn't re- read this, so I don't know at what age they're talking about. But this is something that I've literally not spent a second ever thinking about. If I have... million in the bank, then I will be content. Like, who does anybody behave this way or think this way? Yeah, I hope not. And I think the way that I look at this is like, this is going to sound cheesy. Like, what does a rich life mean to you? I think it's a lot of the little things. It's not the big numbers like that. Well, let me ask you a question, Ben. (laughs) Okay. What's your number? I don't have one either. I think that's stupid. And especially, it's hard to answer across like where you live. Like, I think someone who lives in New York is going to be far different than someone who lives in West Michigan in terms of wealth, right? Just because of the standard of living. Yeah. I mean, that is just such a ridiculous question. I agree. But I'm, to me, it's like, it's like the little things. It's 
it's getting to a point of not worrying, not where money is not your biggest worry in life. So the next part of the survey is something that I can get behind. So they asked, what is wealth to you? And the biggest answer was living stress-free and having peace of mind. Right. Because I think, isn't arguing about money one of the biggest causes of divorce? It's got to be in the top three. It's either the top one or the top two. Yeah. So I think that's the point. If you get to that point where money is not your biggest worry in life, that's 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 wealthy for me. How's that sound? The, what's the Nick Murray quote? It doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're worried about money, you're not wealthy. Yeah, that, that sums it up perfectly. And speaking of people that are worried about money, let's talk about CalPERS. Yes. This triggered me this week. Yeah, this is your 35. <laughs> yes. Yes. I wasn't as worried about the retirement thing. I was worried about CalPERS. So one of the legislative representatives to the League of California Cities, whatever, that, that, you know, that sounds like something from the Avengers, by the way. You're basically rolling your eyes as you speak about this. Yeah, it's... it's ugh. So I wrote about this and they said... To, re- to reach their 7% bogey, helpers needs to, quote unquote, think outside the box. I think they should just try harder. Yeah. So <laughs> right, that, that'll do it. And so they're obviously, they have, they have a huge mismatch between assets and liabilities and what they're going to have to pay out to their beneficiaries. I think they said the average funding ratio for the 450s and city 450 cities and towns that participate in helpers is between 60 and 70% funding ratio. And so my whole point is, if they couldn't get better stats up during a nine-year bull market, well, wait. When did the bull market start? I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to get actually. Eighteen ninety-six. <laughs> so stocks have been up for nine years in a row, and if these pension plans can't fix some of their problems after huge market gains, what makes them think changing their strategy now is going to make anything any better? So my point is, guess what? These pensions are not going to save themselves through investment returns alone. It's going to have to be something else. And my tongue-in-cheek solution is increased tax revenue through legalized drugs and sports gambling. I'm only half kidding about Wait, that. Wait, how did we solve the retirement crisis last week? Oh, because people are going to be paid money to give up Google. That's right. <laughs> Congress, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah everyone, if everyone gives up Google for a year, problem solved. Yeah, so I mean, this is... I, I think the, the headline of the article was like, they urge them to do something... Yeah, think outside the box and try something different, which is a disaster. I mean, that especially when you're dealing with the bureaucracy. Of so a I'm just, fund. I'm just, I'm just brainstorming here. But what about like I don't know, shorting Amazon? Maybe they should go long Greenlight Capital as a reversion <laughs> trade. Yeah, I'm surprised. They, I wonder if they invest in them as it is. So I actually got reached out to by an author at Institutional Investor Magazine. And they wanted to know what happened to David Einhorn. We actually discussed this a little bit on a podcast a few weeks ago. And I think I tweeted about it. So that's why they reached out to me. And he was probably, I don't know, the last great young hedge fund manager with an amazing track record. Yeah. So he started, was- he started Greenlight in 1996. He was only 27 years old. And then over the next decade, he did annualize 26%, which is pretty good. What, however you slice it, whether it was because of a few trades, like whatever. He did 26% a year for a decade when he was 27 years old. That's freaking good. And he is brilliant. Did you ever read his book? Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. It, I mean, it was dense, but yeah, it was good. What was it, it called? Was, and, oh, but, fooling some of the people all the time? Yeah, it was about a short, a, a stock that he shorted, and he went to like the ends of the earth to make sure that this thing, he knew it was a fraud, and it, it took years and years of of his life and like legal proceedings and he didn't even make that much money on it. But <laughs> it, but what it showed me is that he, I and mean, he's basically like a forensic accountant, like mm-hmm. so smart. But the thing is, and, and I hate to, I kind of was hesitant to even talk to the reporter on this article because 
you hate to be the person that's dancing on someone's grave right. prematurely and making like i i don't have any insider knowledge of why things have gone bad for einhorn but my my theory was i think following the crisis way too many fundamental hedge fund managers got into macro thinking so he, his, and, his gold thing was yeah gold and he talked about the fed a lot more and his whole thing coming up was i'm a bottoms up fundamental investor right and so i remember so we had a hedge fund that we invested with at my old endowment fund and it was a long short manager and it was the same thing this guy did huge deep dives on long short it was all fundamentals and after the crisis he said you know i never paid attention to economic indicators before i didn't even know what the ism was and now i'm looking at the ism readings every time they're released and i know if it's above 50 it's good if it's below 50 it's bad and that to me was just this enormous red flag of Listen, you that's huge style drift. You're not a macro manager. Just stay away from this stuff. What happened subsequently with his performance? Oh, it was terrible. It was it was awful. And that happened to a lot of fund managers, I think, that that decided I mean, it's one thing if you're a macro hedge fund manager, but if you go from being totally fundamentally driven to then trying to incorporate macro, that I just don't think that can work. That it's just huge style drift. So Einhorn hasn't been in the market since two thousand nine, which is pretty incredible. But this gets to the point of outflows from active into indexing. like This is sort of the poster child for that. When you're giving money to a discretionary stock picker, how do you know that he's going to come back? Like, How can you know? I, right. That, that's the hardest decision. That's why I thought being a manager of managers in the institutional world was so hard because you just have no clue. It's not that quant is perfect, but at least you know what you're getting. At least you know yes. the rules and you understand that it's going to underperform for three years in a row at some point in time and maybe even more. But with this, like as a, for example, his, he shorted recent over the past, whatever, 10 years, he shorted Green Mountain, Chipotle, Athena Health, Marta Marietta Materials, Pioneer Natural Resources, Caterpillar, Core Laboratories, Netflix, Amazon, and Tesla. And all of them are either trading higher than when he announced he was short or were bought out at a premium. I mean, what, is, those, what has he been following? What is he like reading my your, blog? Yeah, how many of those ended up in your trading in your trading book? <laughs> By the way, you know what's funny? You know what's funny on a side note? I'm I'm not even doing this to be funny. I shorted Green Mountain like multiple times in 2012. <laughs> you know why? Because I think they had a PE of like 90, and and their competitors were at like I don't know 15 or 20 times. And I was like, well, this makes no sense. By the way, I think Green Mountain was bought by Coca Cola, and it was like one of the <laughs> one of the best stocks of the last 10 years. If you actually had investors in your short selling fund, you would have just said, "I followed Einhorn into it. What else do I need to do?" Yeah, what's my fault? It, it, yeah, it, it is like the mean. The, that's the problem is that mean reversion doesn't exist with individual investors, and that's why it's so hard to pick them. Because what do you base it on? The short term track record or the long term track record? How does this not affect his psychology and his personal life, and then all the other sort of garbage that goes into that? Like. It's you know so so investors in 2017 took a third of the redeemable capital out of the fund, taking it from a peak of 11.8 billion down to 6.4. So then you get into this: do they try to shoot the moon to get back, and and get that track record back to where it was, or do they become more conservative? Because one of the things we found with hedge fund managers after the crisis was they have all their personal capital just about tied up in these funds, and a lot of them said. We're not willing to get too aggressive with our own personal capital. We're going to preserve. And that's why they, a lot of them missed the snapback rally. And, and so, it's yeah, it's really difficult to separate the things there. Maybe he's doing what he should be, which is sticking to his knitting as a value investor. I mean, the gold thing aside, I think 18 or 20% of the fund is in is a General Motors right now. Yeah, GM. Man. I, yeah, I don't... I, nothing would surprise me at this point. He could for sure have... 
a comeback. My my theory would be we'll probably see a bunch of hits and misses where we'll have articles saying Einhorn is coming back, and then we'll have articles saying no, he's not. I think it's going to be a lot of back. One of the reasons why he hasn't gotten filleted in the media is because he just seems like a nice guy and he seems like easy to root for. He doesn't have like, maybe he does have the huge ego, but he's not, he's not the Ackman sort of guy that's like really easy to, to root against. Agree. He's not very like out there and flamboyant, overconfident like a lot of hedge fund managers are. So anyway, moving on, this is something that we have been seeing forever and, and this will never not be the case is athletes getting ripped off. So Kwame Brown is suing his advisor at, at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and he's alleging that they forged his signature, resulting in a loss of about $17.4 million. <laughs> Jeez. And the reason why he found out about this was because he tried to contact his advisor and they weren't, he wasn't able to get a hold of her. And somebody picked up, looked up his information and said, you don't even have any money with us. Wow. You know, one of the things I, I think that makes this hard, so I had a friend from college reach out in the last week, and he said he has a financial advisor who the firm shall remain nameless. But he kind of asked me, I don't even know how well they're doing. How do you even know if a financial advisor is doing what's best for you? And that's not, that has nothing to do with, this is obviously fraud, and this, this goes way beyond that. But I think that's the hardest part for people who are outside of the world of finance, is actually understanding, like, is this person doing a good job for me? And, and a lot of people just don't know. And they, they think that everything's being taken care of and everything's fine. But the people who don't pay attention to this stuff, I think we, we may take it for granted because we're looking all the time. The people who are outside of finance, just they have a, a much harder time figuring out, is this person actually doing a good job for me or am I getting screwed? Yeah. So not knowing anything about the inner workings of professional sports, but obviously financial illiteracy is a huge issue in the NFL, the NBA, and uh, and the rest of the sport leagues. So let's go to the combine this year for the NFL and NBA drafts and see if we can get some some uh, new clients. How's that sound? All right, I'm in. All right. So speaking with uh, the fraud story, this thing from the Wall Street Journal is amazing. It's This is why I think I said earlier on the podcast, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I said, I'm long lawyers in the Bitcoin space. That would be my best trade of the year. But you were long on paper, to be fair. You didn't actually put any, you have no skin in the game. <laughs> no, this was just in my trade journal. This, this is this is me hedging your Tesla short bet. All right, it's enough. Knock it off. <laughs> All right, I'm beating a dead horse here. So they found they said in, in Wall Street Journal said investors have poured more than one billion dollars into the 271 coin offerings where the journal identified red flags according to review of company statements and online transaction records. And investors so far have claimed losses of nearly $300 million in these projects, Oof. according to lawsuits. So this is amazing. Of the 1,450 white papers downloaded from the three popular websites that track coin offerings, the journal found... And by the way, this is why we need reporters. Like, you know, They're doing a I huge agree. public service with this. The journal found 111 that repeated entire sections word for word from other white papers. This is just like people in college copying... Papers from the internet and turning them in. Are you right? think, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> what <laughs> Man, spirit coin? You say this all the time that hope springs eternal, right? Like people are always looking for the next thing. Always. That that's why I think that, that I like to say charlatan and hucksters will always have a place in the financial services industry because people want to believe that this stuff is true. Yeah. Like how many how many people do you think actually read these white papers before investing? Zero. Yeah. It's. The other one was at least 121 of these projects didn't disclose the name of a single employee, and several of them had listed team members who either didn't appear to exist or were just copied from other projects and not involved. It's amazing. 
I was going through, I did a presentation at Bloomberg last Friday. And one of the things that I was talking about was analyst estimates, specifically like chief strategists and what they expect. And every year it's, you know, between eight and 10%. So I was going back to look at what they actually expect. And, and sure enough, I think I went back to 2007 and the average is 8.8% a year. That's the average guesstimate. And one of the things that I found was Barron's did a piece going to 2008. And let me just read you a little snippet. So 2008, the market fell 38%. And here's what they wrote. The stock market has just experienced its most volatile year since the current bull market began. Corporate profits shrank in the third quarter for the first time since early 2012. Record oil prices, housing deflation, rising loan defaults, and tighter credit conditions threatened to tip the U.S. economy into recession. Against this troubling backdrop, it's no wonder investors are worried that the bull market might end in 2008. But Wall Street's top equity strategists are quick to dismiss such fears. Indeed, the dozen Sears we've surveyed all have penciled in higher stock prices in 2008. On average, the group sees the Standard & Poor's 500 at 1640 by the end of the year, or about 10% higher than the recent 1486 with global growth and a benevolent Federal Reserve uh, serving as twin crutches for the aging bull. Ouch. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> that's, that's painful. So how much of this do you think is it's hard to predict, and how much do you think this is career risk? Well, I mean, the first one goes without saying, and I would say probably career risk. I mean, you're much more likely to have a plus or minus 20% year in terms of away from the average than you are to have a quote-unquote average year. But why would somebody predict a, a plus 27% year? Like, there's no upside to that. You know what I mean? Right. And honestly, the market is up on average three out of every four years. So if you predict that the market will rise... You're, there's a good chance you're going to be right. It's just how much. And you've shown stats on this before that the market rarely ever trades within, say, 7 to 10% a year. It's it's extremely rare. One of the things that I showed was, and I, I'm, I forget the exact numbers, but there was 14 years that the Dow was plus or minus 3% from the average. And there was 33 years where it was plus or minus 20% from the average. So what I'm trying to say is my 2019 Dow forecast is 29 million. <laughs> By the way, they they predicted the S&P would end the year in 2008 at 1640 it was actually 930 that it ended at. <laughs> and so the average the average um whiff was 12%. They were off by 12% a year. Yeah, that's but and to to I mean it, it's a it's a tough job, and well, I, it's a game, I yeah, don't it's a game envy that, them at all. It's a game that can't be won, which is what game you know they shouldn't be playing in the first place. Exactly. But unfortunately, a lot of their clients want to know that they have their hand on the pulse of the markets. <laughs> Read, reading the tea works. leaves. <laughs> yes. It's a second half story. So there was a great article in the CFA Institute, Enterprising Investor, this week from Sloan Hotel. And it was a group of, what, 18 different chart crimes, which were... This was amazing. I wish I would have thought of it. This is one of those pieces that I really wish I would have written. Yeah, it was, it was perfect. Terrific. It's so easy to use charts and statistics to back up any case that you want. And in, I think a lot of people actually agree with a lot of them, which is, which is kind of sad, but this was perfect. So one of the most pernicious chart crimes, and we see this all the time, I actually wrote about this recently, is, okay, if you overlay two charts, there's only three directions <laughs> lines can go. They can go up, they can go down, and they can go sideways. So it's very, very easy to line up two charts and come to the conclusion. So one of the things that I did was I overlaid two lines that looked exactly alike, and one of them was like the Dow, the Dow from the 1950s and Altria from the 1980s. And boy, did they look alike. <laughs> and yeah, and they have nothing to do with each other. The, my favorite one is always, of course, the 1987, which someone puts out a chart that shows the year in, leading up to the crash in 1987, overlays a chart that is right on the precipice of that saying, and they, they, they tweet out, just saying, 
on average, <laughs> on average, every three weeks we see a 1987 chart. Yeah, that's that's probably about right. And the other good one is the the S and P 500 versus the Fed's balance sheet, which that one's not a crime because that's true. Yeah, right? no, no, no. That is. <laughs> be careful what you wish for. My favorite, and this this wasn't Sloan didn't pull this from her post, but it was the hours of work to buy the S and P 500. I love this one. So the implication is that this peaked in 2000, and of course there's a red circle, and then a crash, and then in 2016 or whatever this is from, there's a red circle, and I think we all know what happens next. We've seen this movie before. <laughs> yes, we know it. So one of my favorite correlation and causation graphs over time, there was this website a few years ago, and they broke things down and showed how you can lie with statistics, and they showed things like the MSCI World Stock Index is highly correlated to the average weight of U.S. farm-raised turkeys. But my other, and it's just Duh. two lines that, yeah. But my other favorite one was number of people who drowned by falling in a pool correlates highly with films that Nick Cage appeared in. The lines are perfectly aligned. Uh, I hope somebody was arrested for that. Yeah. It, it was, the, the point was, it was, they were trying to be funny and say, this is how you lie with statistics and graphs. All right. So I hope this isn't a chart crime, a chart that I made, but it's just an observation. So the, the, the bearish catalyst, forget about, um, valuations or anything like that, but like the actual catalyst, the thing that they were waiting for was rising rates, right? When the Fed pulls away the punch bowl, when things normalize, valuations are going to come down, stocks are going to come down. And listen, at some point, there is a level at which interest rates will be competing for with stocks. I don't know if that's 4% on the 10-year or 4.5%. I guess we'll have to wait for Gunlock to alert us on that. But <laughs> from July 2016 to today, the 10-year went from a low of one point, I think it was under 1.4% to 3.1%. And over that time, the S&P 500 has gained 34%. So rising rates are not going to make stocks crash. The crazy thing to me is the fact that people are so worried about 3% in the 10-year treasury. Remember when 3% was considered low? It's amazing. Obviously, we anchor to these past values. It's amazing to me that 3% is now considered high. Well, it depends if you're falling to 3% or rising to 3%. Oh, okay. But yeah, and I've done some work on this in the past too, that rising rate environment stocks have actually held up fairly well. And and plus the idea that bonds are an income competition for stocks, I think doesn't really hold water because they're just, they're just far too different. So I think comparing like dividend yields to bond yields is just, it's not a good way to compare assets. I don't think investors make decisions based on those, those types of variables. We prefer Tobin's Q all the way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So we got a good question that kind of makes my head hurt thinking about. And speaking of rising rates, so what impact, will, and this is someone asked this on Twitter, what impact will rising rates have on the real estate market? And now I feel like you could go a million different directions on this because, so rising rates may cause people to get off their butts and buy houses because they're worried that rates will continue to rise. And if rates continue to rise, then mortgages will be more expensive because interest costs are higher. Mm-hmm. But let's say rates are rising. Maybe that causes fewer people to sell because if you have a 3.5% 30-year mortgage, why would you want to sell your house and go into a 5% 30-year mortgage? So maybe that depresses supply. But, no, I mean, there's a million different ways you could do this. This is why I prefer to hold individual homes instead of a home fund. <laughs> is, this where, okay. is this what you're going for? Yeah, you're diversified. And you keep your diamonds in the basement. Yeah. So I, I think, honestly, especially I think for young people, how many people do you think really take into account interest rates when making this decision? Because buying a home is such a personal decision. Like when we bought our first house, 
I didn't care what interest rates were. We wanted a house and we took whatever rate was given to us. <laughs> no, it's sort of funny. I feel like the the layman is really comfortable giving advice on the direction of interest rates. Like when, yes. I, when I bought my apartment in December 2015, a family member was like, well, get that mortgage fast because rates are going up. And I want to be like... <laughs> Oh really? You don't know that. Um, what's your opinion on the forex? Like, would you like to chime in there? Like, I don't know why people are so comfortable like, giving advice on the uh, mortgage market. So I don't. I mean, maybe on the fringe, this this changes people's way of viewing things. And the, the other thing is, well, are rates rising because the economy is getting better, or is it because inflation is getting out of hand? I no one really knows. But I don't think. I honestly don't think the individual, the average individual, makes decisions on housing based on interest rates. They make they they use their emotions far too, you know, housing is such a an emotional asset and De- devil's advocate. Maybe the right. maybe the individual doesn't make decisions primarily based on interest rates, but what if the crowd makes decisions based on interest rates? That's possible, I suppose. I don't know. I just gotcha. I don't see it. Here's my counter argument. The Fed was raising rates throughout the end tail end of the housing bubble and it didn't matter. Rates were going up by a quarter of a percent every quarter, it seemed like, every time the Fed met, and people were worried that... I think my first mortgage in 2007 was 6.5%, maybe. You know, I don't think that really curtailed housing demand or supply. So I think it's more about... There's a difference between the level of interest rates and how easy or lax credit standards are and how easy it is to get a loan. So I think there's a big difference there. So I guess what we're trying to say is it's complicated. As always, yes, I don't know. That's what I'm. That's what I'm sticking with. But it, it makes me feel good that I was able to refinance at a very low rate for my mortgage. And if rates keep going up, that's going to look like a really good decision. And I will look like a genius. Well, just so you know, Carl Quintanilla tweeted this morning. He had the former Well CEO on TV. If you're going to buy a house, do it now because rates are all caps going to increase. <laughs> okay. Well. So that's that's, that's our that's it. our PSA. So do what you got to do. Right. That settles it. Any good recommendations for me? Okay, this week? so I I did a lot of podcast listening this week. I told you on Friday I took the train the wrong direction, so I got <laughs> I got off the subway in Jackson Heights, Queens, and I walked to Brooklyn. It was nine miles. By the way, how much has your podcasting listening increased since you got the AirPods? A lot, but no, definitely. But I also, I mean, I walk my dog, I walk my my baby. Like I'm on the subway a lot, so. It seems like, my God, I must do a lot of podcasts, but like, there's a lot of time that I'm walking and stuff. Yeah, Any, anyhow, helps. so on that nine-mile hike, I listened to Bill Simmons interviewed Lou Adler, who has been sitting next to Jack Nicholson at, at Lakers games for almost 40 years. Did you get a chance to listen to that? No, I haven't. It's in my queue. It's freaking amazing. That guy had some life and just really great stories. And uh, By the way, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but wouldn't, wouldn't Jack Nicholson be... Like in your top five most wanted podcast interviewees. To yes, hear. yeah. I would love to hear Jack Nicholson share stories for like four hours. So he told the story about how one time he, he pushed a coach. I think <laughs> Nicholson did, or, or maybe a ref. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's pretty good. Off to listen. And to how one. they went to they went to the Lakers Celtics finals in the eighties, and they had to be in a cage because the crowd was so hostile. Wow. So then I also watched sticking with basketball. I also watched a Kareem documentary on HBO. I think it's old, um, but he was really just a fascinating person. Um, I highly recommend that if you're interested in that. And I also listen to, so I've been saving this up to to binge listen, the Caliphate podcast by the New York Times. Have you listened to that? I have not. Okay. So I don't know what sort of award they're going to win. I don't know if it's a Pulitzer or, or whatever, but it is so well done. 
they speak to a Canadian kid who left to join ISIS and then ran away basically and is back. Uh, I don't know. I think he's in Canada now or maybe he's in Pakistan. I forget where he is. But just a really frightening, chilling story about what goes on inside their like, you know, their diaries is basically what she said she's looking for. The reporter that is from New York Times just really, really cannot recommend it enough. And then I watched Spotlight this weekend, won the best picture in 2015. You ever see that? Interesting story. I thought it probably would have made a better book than movie. It was kind of boring, I thought. Okay. I really liked it. I guess I had, I didn't really have much expectations. I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. It was a good. Thing. I also watched it with my wife, which um, was sort of fun. It's not something that we do that often, like sit down to watch a movie together. So I don't know. I had, I had fun. And then lastly, I read John Brooks is is really terrific. He wrote The Go-Go Years, which tells the story about Wall Street in the late 60s mid to late 60s. And he also wrote Business Adventures, which I haven't read yet, but it's one of the books that Bill Gates always recommends. So anyhow, another book that he wrote was Once in Golconda. And he tells the story about Wall Street in 1920 to 1938. And some of the stories there just render so many of the comparisons that we make to that time just completely useless. Like the story about mm-hmm. the the president of Chase Manhattan shorting the stock and then receiving a making $4 million, not paying taxes, and receiving a pension for the rest of his life is insane. And Richard Whitney, the president of the Stock Exchange, um, who was originally called the Wolf of Wall Street, just unbelievable stories and, and so much rich detail. I really recommend it if you're into market history. Yeah, he does a really good job of explaining what it was like at the time. It's easy to look back now at the returns and stuff, but his he's like a really true historian, I think. So my recommendations for this week, I read The Devil in the White City, which I thought was really good, and you told me they're making a movie with it with Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese. It's the dueling stories of the World's Fair in Chicago in the 1890s, and they were trying to one-up the French people who had just gotten done building the Eiffel Tower. And the other side of the story, which I think is more interesting, is that there was a serial killer on the loose in the city at that point in Chicago. And it's a really, really well done book. It kind of reads like a piece of fiction. You know, I think, I, I, pretty th- good. I, think I messed up because I didn't enjoy this book as much as I think I should have. I don't know. If it's I, good. I, it's yeah. definitely it's a very hyped. Eric Larson is the is the author. It's very high hyped. You know, I came with a lot of high expectations, and I think it's 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 pretty good. Did you ever get into Barry on HBO with Bill Hader? I stopped after three episodes. I did not because I didn't like it. I just I just wanted you know. I'd say I'd finish it. I would say it's a solid B show. I wouldn't say like you have to go out and binge it now, but I enjoyed it. Second season is coming, and I will definitely watch in the second season. I enjoyed Barry. It was kind of a mix between. I'm just a huge Bill Hader fan. I think he's hilarious. His sort of type of humor, which is just very subtle. And, and I really enjoyed it, and it kind of ended on a cliffhanger, so that was a good one. I really liked two Mark Maron podcasts this week, one with Josh Brolin, who is a way cooler guy than I am, and I would love to hang out with him, and the other one was Melissa McCarthy. And I think if you hear these podcasts with, with celebrities and they kind of come across as normal people, that that's usually a solid sign in my book, and both of them did for me. Hey, question. Did you... Google by any chance Josh Brolin's brother after the listening? <laughs> no, I did not. Okay, so it's not funny. It's like pretty sad. Um, he was. Oh, that's right. The story. Okay. Yeah, he was like homeless, and he's like he's like at least pictures that I saw. He was like a huge guy and just pretty awful. I didn't realize that Barbara Streisand was his, his stepmom or was his stepmom. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because yeah, his dad was an actor too. I guess I didn't realize that either. But he had a, he had a cool story. He seemed like a pretty down to earth guy, and I've been watching him since Goonies. So he's had a lot of good movies over yeah. the years. So. I think that's all we got for this week. 
Wait, what about the Bill Simmons, Ethan Hawke one? Yes, Bill Simmons, Ethan Hawke was another one. He was a tad pretentious, but when he went through all the emails, I, that's my favorite Bill Simmons podcast is when he just goes to the IMDb with people and goes over their movies that they've done. Yeah, that's good. I thought, yeah, I agree. I thought uh, Ethan Hawke takes film very, very <laughs> seriously. Yes, it's kind of like, yeah, he, instead of movies, he says film. It's kind of like a person who calls jeans denim, right? You can tell that's Wait, just... what? <laughs> You ever heard someone who calls jeans denim? Uh, I'm wearing. I, maybe I have, but I don't. I don't. What's the analogy here? Just he calls movies film. Okay, and that's, I kind of equate it to the same type of people who would call jeans denim. Okay, that's a stretch. <laughs> There's. <laughs> All right, that's <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> But that, I thought that was a good one. And going over the movies he's done over the years, I, I'm a big fan of a lot of his movies. So I thought he gave a really, really great. Oh, uh, him. The Denzel thing with Training Day was pretty great. Yes, De- Denzel is like the big top dog alpha male of the acting world all right send us uh, your tv recommendations book recommendations animal spirits pod at gmail.com and we will see you next week